Welcome to the Thematic Investors Podcast, powered by Vidrio Financial. Vidrio Financial is proud to support the Thematic Investors Podcast with host Kieran Kavana. Vidrio helps allocators harness the investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Welcome to the Thematic Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kavana of Old Farm Partners. Our goal is to bring great investors and themes that great investors are working on. Some are under the radar, and we think they're experts in their disciplines. This podcast series is sponsored by Vidrio Financial. Lucky for us today, we have one of the best telecom investors in the U.S. to talk about what's going on in that, in that sector. Uh, and we're not talking about the old telecom business. It's the, the days of AI, semiconductors, data centers, cell phones, and video delivery arguably one of the most dynamic areas in, uh, in investing. Uh, so welcome, Alan Bezoza of Digital Bridge. Thank you, Gary. Nice to meet you. And thanks for having me on. Alan is uniquely qualified to talk about what's going on in the telecom sector. Since October 2020, he has managed a low net, low factor, long short equity strategy out of Denver. Alan has been investing for 20 years in the global telecom and cloud ecosystem. He manages a strategy inside a publicly traded global alternative asset manager, Digital Bridge, which is one of the largest owners and operators of digital infrastructure. As you'll hear, we think this is one of the most dynamic areas for investing. So let's kick it off. So Alan, I'd love to hear what, um, a little bit about your background and how you became so enamored of the telecom sector and how it all works. Well, thanks, Kieran. And uh, first, let me just say you're, you make telecom sound sexy. So thank you. Um, <laughs> To start off, both my parents were engineers in Bell Labs. I grew up in New Jersey uh, near the beach, uh, Seaside Heights, Tom's River, if you know that area. And a lot of people in that area, their families all worked at Bell Labs at one point in their careers. And so I, I, I'm the, the prodigy of two engineers. My father was in optical networking and my mother was on wireless technologies. And so growing up, I would you know hear all these stories about my dad and telling me stories about the things he's working on. As I tell my kids today that their grandfather is an important, was an important element in making the internet work. There's things like DWDM technology or CDMA in my mother's world. These are two really important technologies that were invented uh, and refined in Bell Labs. So I'm really proud of the work they've done. They have now retired since then, and, and their level of technology has ended with the day they retired. So our conversations are much different. But growing up, we talked a lot about around the Thanksgiving dinner about what was going on in telecom and how it all worked. I guess, generally speaking, if I go back to my career and my history, I've always wanted to know how things worked. You know, I would take apart stereos. I would take apart um, anything I can get my hands on and take it apart and figure out how it worked. It was always amazing to me and just putting things back together and try to get it to work again. I built remote control airplanes with my dad, um, just all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of like I've always had this sense of intellectual curiosity that when I first started doing investing in the late 90s, I actually worked in the... Um, aerospace defense industry. And my father was actually in the Air Force prior to working at Bell Labs. And so we always had this, this affinity for talking about airplanes. And during the, uh, the idea that technology was becoming more and more important for aerospace defense. So in the late 90s, I had an opportunity to start looking at the, uh, the industry of communications technology, optical networking, which was this exact same spot my father was at, at Bell Labs. So we started, it, it just was a fantastic time in the world. I mean, things were, the internet was just growing and it couldn't grow without optical networking technologies. And that's where I started. And over time, I expanded and expanded from the center of being comm equipment, let's call it, 
that went upstream to do carriers, data centers, telecom companies, media companies, as well as downstream to do uh, semiconductors and the supply chain underneath it. So my, my frame of reference and my lens for many years has always been up and down this large food chain. Uh, and I'd love to know how all this works. And by knowing how it all works at the very beginning, it gave me a lot of insight in how to invest across the telecom space. You know, cable versus telecom, late 90s for broadband. You know, DSL versus cable modems was an early um, a early um, theme that was certainly questionable by investors of who was going to win. Um, now we have the same issues with wireless versus wireline. We can talk about that later. Um, but there's so many things that are happening and always happen in this space that makes it interesting and it's an important part of our daily lives. So I'm a tech nerd by trade, and I love applying technology to investing. Well, you could have just said you owe it all to your parents, I guess, but uh, it's always yeah. fascinating to me. I mean, I, th I do think uh, you could do a whole podcast on the parents of great investors, but um, but before we establish what yeah, you're a great investor, I'd love to walk through with you a little bit more on you know where we are today. Um, you know, a lot of people look at TMT, the sector that includes telecom, media, technology, um, or technology, media, telecom, I guess. Um, and, you know, you focus very much on the telecom side. So maybe we could break it up a little bit and tell us where we are in the cloud ecosystem, and then we can get into the telecom system. Um, and there's so much, so many competing technologies, so many things to do. It does make sense to me for that a long, short equity strategy might find good longs and good shorts when they're incumbents and then they're challengers. But maybe we could start out with the cloud ecosystem from your perspective. My gosh, that's a mouthful of a question. So the cloud ecosystem includes all the, you know, the third-party cloud providers like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, et cetera. And there's people like Facebook that build clouds for themselves and Apple as well, where they're building their own clouds to handle their own applications. Um, Google is kind of in the middle there. But generally speaking, you know, what's happening right now is something I haven't seen in a long, long time. The demand for, for both power, for space, and for connectivity has just grown in, in, in different vectors at the same time, all at the same time. And it's obviously driven by just more things going into a centralized location, more things going into the cloud, quote unquote. But at the same time, this whole shift to AI is driving a lot of change as well. Companies like Microsoft, Amazon, and Google have been spending an immense amount of CapEx over the last three to five years, ever since COVID really, where things just took off. You know, the cloud got bigger and more important. You know, all these applications, even the Zoom call is going through the cloud, right? It's not me calling you and going switch to switch. It's going through the cloud and the cloud back to you. So what's end up happening is Zoom or sorry, the, um, the uh, COVID and work from home changed everything and accelerated the, the demand for, for data centers. Hasn't changed. So it's actually gotten more, more, and more stuff over the last three years, and now we have this AI wave that started at the end of last year, where Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and Facebook even have just accelerated their planning and spending to build and construct data centers for next generation architectures. There's an immense amount of change, and it's something that you know when I sit here and I write these quarterly letters um, to our investors, I just I look back at some of the ones I've written, and just it is literally mind numbing at how things have changed and how quickly they've changed. And I'm happy to go through all the details, but you know, space, power, which is a big part, and connectivity, you cannot uh, underestimate the need in space. Well, I mean, it's extraordinary, right? I mean, I, I just looked at a Amazon's AWS did 80 billion in revenue last year, and it's more this year. And, um, and you know, I didn't know what AWS was three years ago. Um, so, I mean, maybe you could follow up a little bit on that, on um, how things are changing from what you know, I think most people think how data centers work and then maybe a little bit on that power issue. Cause I don't think we, I've heard too much about 
how much power we're going to use. I know I've heard that, um, you know, we keep hearing everything through the lens of semiconductors in my world, the investing world and how much, yeah, there's such competition for NVIDIA chips and, but I guess everything else around it must be changing as well. So maybe you could just walk through a little bit of that. Yeah, let's start by the premise. So, so my firm, Digital Bridge, is a asset manager that specializes mostly in private equity. We're obviously on the public equity side, but we're a private equity firm that's, that specializes in data centers, towers, and common infrastructure, com uh, networks. And if you think about data centers, which is a big part of our practice, these are massive buildings that we build and construct, cool and give power, and sell space to, and power really, to Microsoft, Amazon, Google, TikTok, Oracle, et cetera. So what ended up happening is, you know, Microsoft used to build their own data centers. There's been a shift over the last call it, five years because they can't build them fast enough themselves. And they don't they don't have the land, they don't have the power capabilities or the people to be able to build, construct, design, and implement these data centers. So what they're doing is they're basically using firms like our, our portfolio companies, um, like Vantage and Databank, and building out these data centers. Now it takes three years to build a data center. I can't say that again. I will say it again. It takes three years to build a data center. You can't rush it. You wish you could sound like building another manufacturing line in the semiconductor space. And that's why, to your point, people look at the lens of semiconductors, don't understand power. The power supply chain is really a problem. We just can't build power fast enough. And at the same time, we actually can't transport power that well. You can transport data with fiber optic lines. We've been doing that for 50 years. But what we haven't done is transport power well. And so you have to build these data centers in these power zones. So Northern Virginia has become a very large power zone, I call it, uh, where there's connectivity between New York as well as, as Europe, but there's a lot of power uh, availability there. And so it became this critical mass. There's other areas too around the world, San Francisco area, Bay Area, LA, Dallas, Frankfurt, uh, Amsterdam, et cetera, where these big power zones or data center zones have been built. If you fly over to Dallas, You'll fly over to data center after data center after data center uh, outside of Washington, D.C. So what's been happening is that the amount of space and power is, is being limited by just the amount of built we've already built. So in order to find cheaper power to be able to provide these AI chips, and we talk about NVIDIA chips being very power intensive relative to the CPU Intel counterparts. But as we move to AI, it's not a space problem. It's actually a power problem. And these GPUs, and it's been really well documented, how much more power hungry they are than their predecessors. Yes, they're more they're more efficient and generate more compute power, compute technology, but the power required, actually physical power is, is going to be a challenge and, and probably a bottleneck. So what we're doing is because it takes three years to build a data center, we're actually moving a lot of this, uh, these data centers out of those Northern Virginia power zones, as I called it, and moving into places where there's cheap power, places like Iceland, places like Scandinavia in general, Northern uh, Pacific, Northwest United States. These are areas where there's cheap power and you can still transport the information via, via fiber optic cables and you're still close enough where you don't have latency issues. So that, that is kind of the, the issue we're dealing with right now is that these power, the power hungriness of these GPU servers are just multiples more power hungry. So originally we'd be able to build these data centers with a certain framework of how much um, square footage per, per watt. And now, because there's more wattage being needed by these GPUs from NVIDIA, we only need about 13% of the space for the same amount of power. So we don't, have a, we don't have a space problem, we have a power problem. And when you take a legacy data center and try to retrofit it into 
uh, a GPU from a CPU based data center, it falls off a cliff, the economics, because you're only using 13% of the space, being a six times more power hungry. So there's a lot of change happening. And so we're now, and this is really all because we're taking three years to build a data center, the designs are doing today for AI, the last, let's call it nine months, it's all started, are really not going to be implemented for three more years. So all the data centers coming online today are not efficient for today's architecture of, of these GPU clusters that they're building. So I know I threw a lot out there to you, and maybe I'll breathe and let you ask a question. No, There's, it's very cool. I mean, I think it's it, happening is location, the size versus power or space versus power conundrum. And then also, how do you figure out these legacy data centers and repurpose them when there's no power, power per square footage is off? Well, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I promised my partners I wouldn't mention uranium or nuclear power, but it seems like it would be part of the solution here. But uh, we could that that could also be for another podcast. But maybe you could um, talk about in the in this you know sort of extraordinary build out. I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's all emanating from the U.S. too, the, and the hyperscalers, the big ones. Maybe you could talk about what the strategic priorities are for those hyperscalers. It's very interesting because each one of the hyperscalers, I, I wrote in one of my quarterly letters about Cloud Wars. So there's Cloud Wars 1.0, which was basically providing third-party workloads for banks, for retailers like Home Depot, Walmart. Everyone moved to the cloud, right? Even companies like Digital Bridge run in the cloud with, with Microsoft. So everyone moved to the cloud, and in Cloud Wars 1.0, Amazon won. Amazon won Cloud Wars 1.0 because of the fact that they created APIs and integration to easily port over workloads from on-premise to off-premise, right? And they provided all this support and, like I said, a API connectivity. Microsoft had their own Office 365 ambitions, and Google really tried hard with Google Cloud GCP, but really never took off the way that, that Amazon did. So Amazon won Cloud War 1.0. Here we are now on Cloud Wars 2.0, as I call it, which is now the, the, the AI business. AI is going to create a lot of, it's very expensive. The CapEx required is immense, partly because these GPUs and the, the actual power required, but also the GPUs themselves are much more expensive. So it's very capital intensive. And so if anyone, anyone without scale, other than the cloud guys, want to create workloads on AI workloads, they really have to be on the cloud. So what's end up happening is that all these the cloud guys in Cloud Wars 2.0 is very different. Nobody wants to be left behind and let Amazon win. So what's Microsoft doing? Microsoft has their own internal based systems for AI workloads, meaning that they're creating Copilot, which is going to make our lives more efficient. Uh, Excel, Word, building, uh, building and coding, uh, doing things with pictures we've never done before. So all the things that we could be more productivity in AI in uh, Microsoft's suite of products in Copilot is what they're building towards. And so by doing that, they're charging people $30 more a month for their products. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to get my hands on it and see how I can be more effective and efficient. I would probably would have had a much easier day today. But nonetheless, you know, that's kind of their strategy. They're spending all this money on NVIDIA uh, chipsets and building out these clusters so they can create Copilot to make everyone more efficient and charge people more money. Of all the actual cloud providers, they have the easiest path to making more money because for $360 a year, of course, my firm is going to pay for all us, uh, all us heavy Excel users to have the product. Of course, they're going to pay for uh, companies around the world are going to pay thirty dollars, uh, three hundred sixty more dollars a year. It's a rounding error, right? So that will 
will likely stick, and that's a big revenue opportunity for Microsoft. So what are they doing? They're spending a lot of money, right? Their CapEx has gone from like $28 billion to somewhere in the mid-40s next year. That's a big wow. jump up in CapEx, right? Um, now let's talk to you about Google. Google, what they're trying to do is they're trying to improve their search capabilities. So I don't know if you've used uh, Google's um, new AI um, search capabilities, but you can actually implement it into your, your search engine. It's a, it's a setting. Um, I'm happy to show it to you afterwards. But basically, every time you search now, it's called Google GME, I believe it's called. But you can have their algorithm will show you kind of the same chat GPT type information hmm. on the very top of the page before they have the search into clicking into different things for, you know, for advertising-based purposes. Their goal as a company is to improve the search algorithms to get higher CPMs using AI, right? They've already implemented AI. I think people are, are missing this on Google is that they already use AI in a lot of their search algorithms on YouTube and in just general search. It's not a new thing for them. They've worked in AI for many years. I think the view six months ago is Google's behind. They just have a different strategy. They're not trying to provide third-party workloads for companies providing AI. They're using AI for their own search algorithms to get higher, better search, better CPMs. And then you go to Amazon, and it's probably a little less clear, a little more cloudy to use a pun. But I think you know their strategy would be similar to do what they've done in the Cloud Wars 1.0, which is to offer uh, AI workloads for third-party consumption, meaning Home Depot, Walmart, all these companies, can they move towards Amazon's cloud and run AI workloads there rather than working in on-prem? So to be a third-party host for AI workloads, that seems to be the Amazon strategy uh, as of now. I have the right to reserve to change my mind. But this is so expensive because these AI clusters uh, sorry, these GPU clusters are so expensive. We're talking about $25,000 per cluster. And, you know, we're talking about needs of of billions. I mean, the numbers from, from NVIDIA are massive. And so only a few people can afford to do that. You know, companies like Bloomberg are actually taking down data center space right now in order to do some AI stuff. Not unclear what they're doing, but we know they're taking down space in different uh, markets. Uh, companies like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, these very large banks, probably have the capital uh, necessary to to build and construct and play with AI workloads. But right now, very few companies have the ability to spend the same amount of money that is required um, that the big guys are doing. That it is one of the coolest areas to invest. Um, and you lay out a good, a really interesting scenario, but what about NVIDIA? And you know, that's actually caught everyone's attention. What, it, what, what about this kind of explosive growth? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, clearly NVIDIA is in a pole position right now for, um, for designing and developing GPU clusters that are used in AI workloads. Others like AMD, even internally designed systems from Microsoft, Amazon, Apple has a big project as well as, as Google, all have internally designed um, processes in place to be able to circumvent NVIDIA. However, right now, NVIDIA is in a pole position with, with really the only game in town, providing both the software stack, the chips, as well as the connectivity through InfiniBand to be able to make this all work. So they're selling a bundled product and you know because of the allocations that are going on right now they're selling a lot of these bundles versus stripped down gpus however you know one of the things that i've, I've been thinking about and i haven't really been able to quantify this exactly but just noodling over this um we wrote about this in my recent quarterly letter as well that you know the estimates for nvidia for next year 2024 is roughly uh 40 billion dollars plus or minus this is a data center segment i'm sorry is roughly uh 60 billion dollars if we assume about $45 billion of it, or most of the incremental growth is coming from GPU clusters, this translates 
at $25,000 per GPU cluster translates about 1.8 million clusters or servers to be delivered in 2024. It's a big number, right? And the numbers out there are massive, right? They're massive growth, big, big, big. However, each server uses about 10 kilowatts of power. And so the problem with that is that given the, given the cost structure, these engineers want to run these things as hot as possible with zero downtime, which is theoretically impossible, but they want to run it hot. And by utilizing this at a high high rate of utilization and doing some math behind it, you basically come that these 1.8 million servers will consume about 2.3 gigawatts of power, incremental oh. power. Okay. Oh. Now the whole industry, now there's, this is just GPUs, by the way. This doesn't include networking, storage, cooling equipment, other things that are installed alongside the GPU cluster. But to put this in perspective, the entire U.S. data center market is expected to grow by two gigawatts per year. So these new G GPUs, clusters from NVIDIA, are going to utilize all the data center power capacity coming online over next year. Yeah. Now, again, I told you it takes three years to build a data center. So the one question that I asked myself, and I've been thinking about it, is where are all these GPUs going to go? Yes, the semiconductor analysts could estimate X, but the data center analyst, which is three steps removed from the semiconductor analyst, can't build any faster. It just, it just laws of physics. You have to produce, create power. There's zoning, there's labor. There's, it's not turning up a manufacturing line. So one of the things I've been, I've been, you know, just, you know, yes, there's this great demand of, of, of GPU clusters right now, but I just don't see how this can, these can actually go anywhere. At some point, this is going to have a hard time. They're going to have a hard time with the incremental demand, given the fact that there's going to be people sitting on supply. And, and this is, always a problem when we have semiconductors and we have supply demand imbalances, right? When there's supply chain um, restrictions or constraints, they ultimately always end up in gluts. I don't think I've ever, ever seen it not become a glut at some point. It's um, a, uh, yeah, any big moves like this will always have fits and starts, right? And and I guess that's a great, it's a great question on and the, how, and the it's not going to be linear. And, and the problem with this, sorry to interrupt you, but the problem with this too is that you have things like I told you Microsoft has an insatiable amount of demand right now because of this co-pilot opportunity. But you have people that are buying these these uh, um, these GPU chipsets, these GPU clusters, without a real path to revenue. You know, the government of Saudi and other Middle Eastern countries have been buying AI uh, GPU clusters from NVIDIA too for like a skunk work project. I'm sure our government's buying the same, but you have lots of companies that are out trying to figure out what does AI mean to me? Not everybody has a clear path and so it's creating a lot of excess demand of this fear of missing out. Um, like I said, Microsoft is probably one of the few companies that have a really clear path to be able to monetize AI in these AI clusters and spending all the money they are. But there's a lot of question marks around lots of other companies, even Google included, actually, and, and Amazon. You know, can they kind of get better search algorithms and better CPMs by spending you know more money on AI workloads? It's unclear. But it, there's lots of companies that, like I said, like Bloomberg and others, buying GPU clusters for like a skunk work project to see if they can make AI mean something to them. It's worth it so for them. We're, yeah. we're in a very weird situation right now. And, and it's always something that I always think about the semiconductor and the data center analysts. They don't really talk. Well, maybe, you know, maybe it's uh, for, again, the liberal arts majors that are uh, like myself, we could switch to telecom because, yeah. you know, we are just bombarded as consumers with, you know, cable companies going into phone business and, 
phone's going into the cable and I don't fix wireless. It's uh, something, uh, it's a new concept to me, actually. And I'm sure that sounds naive to you, but I would love to understand telecom and could you set the stage for where we are right now and what's going on? So in, in terms of telecom, you know, I've been covering this space for well too long to like, tell you about, about 25 years. And when I first started, one of the big question marks were cable versus telecom. And it was cable modems versus DSL. And the DSL companies, telecom companies, were telling everybody cable won't work because it can't scale. It's a shared network. And I was one of the largest, this years ago at a prior firm, I was one of the largest shareholders of Time Warner Cable and Comcast because I had a view from an understanding of technology that cable can not only provide a very capital efficient method to building out bandwidth, I knew that video over the internet was going to become a thing. And when it became a thing, it was going to drive usage rates that DSL couldn't scale. In fact, I wrote something called DSL, stood for didn't solve last mile. I don't know, I threw an extra M in there. But um, but basically, you know, cable won. They went from 30% market share to a very high market share today nationwide because of the fact they're able to scale these networks very capital efficiently. Well, here we are lots of years later, and they are now the incumbent. You know, DSL has lost. There's been lots of fits and starts on fiber to the home deployments. You know, it's very expensive, very time consuming. But one thing that the industry has never really contemplated was the ability to provide broadband services competing with the likes of Comcast and Charter utilizing mobile spectrum. In other words, over wireless. This call actually, Kieran, is going over T-Mobile's uh, fixed wireless product. In fact, my entire office runs on it. Our our office is about uh, eight people. It all runs on, on fixed wireless, uh, including a TV that streamed all day long with CNBC over HD networks or HD uh, quality product. So, so is your point that the bandwidth now for the for something like fixed wireless is actually adi- more adequate than people think or understand? Well, there's two elements of it. One is how much bandwidth do we actually need? People always think you need more. And the second one is how much bandwidth is actually being provided to you. So we're getting about 200 megs down, about 100 up. We're using this T-Mobile product. We've had it for about 18 months now. Uh, it's been fantastic. And the reason why it works today versus two years ago and why for every, as I wrote in one of my quarterly letters, Every two years, investors looked up, analyzed fixed wireless, and put their heads back down and said, nope, not going to work. The reason why it changed is because under Ajit Pai, uh, FCC leadership uh, several years back, they sold an enormous amount of spectrum from the FCC. Actually, I participated privately and bought spectrum um, in that same context. But there's spectrum being sold uh, in mass to both the, you know, to the wireless operators. Uh, I think they spent something in the you know, $90 billion range, plus or minus, that's a big number for Spectrum. And the amount of Spectrum, it wasn't a 3G, 4G, or 5G thing. It was actually just the amount of Spectrum that became available was, to, and now it's being deployed, so there's excess capacity to be used for broadband services. And so that's one element. Number one is there's been a boatload of Spectrum that's been deplo- been sold by the government and being deployed by the carriers. T-Mobile is a little different because they actually got a lot of excess spectrum from the Sprint acquisition, which, if you want to go back in history, comes back from the um, Clearwire that got acquired by by Sprint that ended up in T-Mobile's hands. But that spectrum they own, the 2.5 gigahertz, is very valuable and, and plentiful. So you have Verizon and, and T-Mobile that have been very aggressive um, in rolling out fixed wireless because there's a amount of spectrum that's been available. The second element is, well, how much bandwidth do we actually need? Right, At some point... They decided that 120 volts in our in our plugs was the right amount of electricity. At some point, they figured out that 70 ish psi of of uh, water pressure was the right water pressure for our houses. At some point, there's a bandwidth number that's going to be steady state, 
right? So how much bandwidth do we need? So the most bandwidth intensive thing we can do is watch TV on a big screen. Watching TV on your phone or, or web cameras, all these things are rounding errors. You know, surfing the internet, rounding error, texting, emailing, rounding errors. Really what the driver is, is watching video and HD video in big screens. And so if you think about a 55, 65 inch TV over Netflix, that's 2.75 megs per second. Megs per second. So if I have 100 TVs at my house, I might need a 300 gigabit connection. Might. But cable companies are selling us 200 gig, uh, sorry, 200 megabits per second minimums. Charter and Comcast, you can't get lower than 200 megabits. Well, I just told you that Netflix is 2.75. Now, there is problems with Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi degrades through walls, especially if you live in post-war uh, New York or post-earthquake San Francisco, or even post-war Europe, for that matter. So Wi-Fi does have some degradation, but there, the idea that we need to continue to have faster and faster speeds is kind of the fallacy. And so is 200 megs from the cable company, sorry, the fixed wireless operators, good enough? Well, I just told you my whole office runs on it. Um, and I also run it at home as well with two teenagers that are constantly TikToking. So we just don't need that much bandwidth and there are plenty available. Now, the argument against fixed wireless by the telecom, the cable companies is the exact same argument that they've given to the telecom companies uh, years ago. Or the, the telecom companies gave to the cable companies was it can't scale and it's a shared network. True. But the same ideas poses the same exact issue is you can put fiber deep in the network and share that same amount of bandwidth over less people, very capital efficiently. So today, Comcast and Charter are, are floundering in subscriber editions because of the addition of cable, sorry, uh, broadband over fixed wireless with T-Mobile and Verizon adding almost a million subscribers a quarter. It's a pretty big number so quickly. And the reason why they're doing it is because it's cheaper and people generally hate their cable companies. I mean, for 25 years, I've been right that cable companies have been taking share and raising prices. Well, those prices are, are things that people remember the most. So it sounds pretty positive for a consumer in this environment. I think ultimately we're all going to spend less for broadband services over time. Wow. It's very cool. Um, and then you throw, throw in a little Starlink and other you know, oddball call options and Mark, it gets it gets even more interesting. It's funny with, with satellite, it's kind of similar to fixed wireless access. Again, the idea of putting using wireless to provide broadband. But for for many, every two years, people look up, analyze uh, Starlink or satellite-based communications, and they put their heads back down and said it's really not going to work. Now, it does work in remote areas. It does work where, you know, there's certain situations where uh, on the battlefield or in very rural areas, it does work. But for everyday broadband and residential suburban urban and even even you know more suburban rural um starlink has its place but i don't think it really has a ubiquitous uh technology it's just too expensive right i mean i remember uh elon musk called it the uh for his rural broadband via satellite was it's better than nothing program uh which is probably actually right so um, i mean there's also a whole bunch of people that live off the grid for a reason and don't want right. to be That's like fair. i think people forget sometimes about you know people that want to live off the grid and, and yeah and people think that, of course, they want to be connected. They don't well, always want to be connected. Well, Alan, could you, do you mind switching gears a little bit on your own investment strategy? And um, Because it is a very cool and dynamic, and I, I, can, I understand it takes sort of a tech nerd plus a financial analyst to do what you do. Um, could you just talk about your strategy and how you implement a low net exposure strategy? Yeah, so at the end of the day, we're stock pickers. I was at Janet's for many years. 
uh, where I co-ran the GMT team, and and we learned how to pick stocks at Janus. I have, I have fond memories there, and I and I really enjoyed my time there learning how to pick stocks. I then went to Dorsal Capital in the Bay Area, where I learned a lot about how to manage risk. And so marrying the two of of investing with the idea of a fundamental stock picker with managing risk is something very attractive to me. And so because what we're doing is investing up and down this very large food chain, like I said earlier, Digital Bridge sits in the middle of this very large universe that we invest in. We're investing up to the customers of our of our portfolio companies, like the cloud guys and the telecom companies, AT&T, Vodafone, Verizon, et cetera. And then we're investing in the competitors to our Digital Bridge portfolio companies, like the tower companies and the data center companies. And then we invest all the way down the stack, the technology companies that go in the data center or on the tower. So we're talking about companies that are doing like data networking, communications technology, semiconductors, components, even some industrial companies like like HVAC companies that sell to the data center. You know, I, we invest in this um, uh, company that does um, ditch digging for the telecom companies. I mean, anything that's in our universe, we have an edge on. And it's a very large universe that's, you know, largely un, unlooked, uh, less looked at, I should say, than a normal TMT investor. And we're not in the internet. We're not in the internet and software companies where most TMT, TMT investors invest. But we are looking at this big, large universe of very different types of companies, but leveraging the insight we get from our private portfolio companies that is our own ex- internal expert network. It's actually been super helpful, not for every company in the, in the universe, but it's been really helpful to figure out what is going on from the top down from our portfolio companies to leverage that into picking stocks, both long and short. And so ultimately we're stock pickers, we pick stocks, but then deploying that in a low net, low factor strategy of being an alpha generator, right? You know, we, we're our, since our inception, 90% of our performance has been generated from, from alpha, which I'm pretty proud of, right? And because of that, it's, it's because of the, the information edge that I think we get from our private portfolio companies. But on top of that, it's investing in this way of these interconnected companies up and down the food chain. One person's revenue is another person's CapEx. You know, I said earlier about the semiconductor guy is not talking to the data center guy, but we are, because that's how we think about things. I don't think in Git codes or silos, I think of things in terms of, of food chains, top of the food chain, middle of the food chain, and bottom of the food chain. I think that's a different way to look at it and not to get caught up in get codes. You know, it, it just made me think, I didn't prepare you for this, but um, are there times too in your space, because it, it it's so interconnected and the CapEx is so huge that there are times that a very big winner will emerge, or sometimes you'll get sort of like everybody loses, right? Like, you know, like if, if, Revenues go down if churn increases, right? Is that does that happen from time to time? I call them shiny pennies, right? Like you know, we're not quarterly investors or long term investors with low turnover, but we find shiny pennies along the way. Where you know, there's many many times over my history and career that I've seen AT and T slow down and speed up and slow down and speed up and slow down and speed up. Where you know, you can take advantage of that um, both on long sides and short sides, and so that's been. You know, figuring out AT and T spending pattern has been, you know, one of my uh, <laughs> one of my games of chance. But it's been super fun to, to do because, again, people that usually look at some of these suppliers AT and T don't also cover AT and T, right? That's kind of the, the the secret sauce of what we're doing is again, one person's revenue is another person's capex, and understanding you, know, you can't invest. I I don't understand even how to invest in software because I can't count widgets up and down the food chain. I understand. And it, it maybe actually, you know, you're out in Denver and I can't think of a city more geared toward telecom uh, in the United States, more so than Denver. I mean, is it an advantage in some ways? 
I would say that there's two things. One, when I first moved out here, I've been here for a long time now. I can't believe how long I've been here. But um, when I first moved out here, it's definitely the home of cable and it was the home of telecom. And, and going back to my nerdisms, you know, one of the reasons why is because Denver has the mountains, right? We're flat and Denver just to the west of these big mountains. And they built these big sonnet rings of optical fiber where it was Denver was a big hub of that before they went over the mountains to Salt Lake City and around south to Albuquerque and across to L.A. So you had these big circles of sonnet rings and Denver was that like linchpin between the east and the west because of the mountains. So there is a lot of telecom here, a lot of cable here. And we know a lot of people here just from osmosis and the industry um, that's been super helpful. Actually, two of our largest portfolio companies, Oseo and Vantage Data Centers, are both based here as well. Um, just have, you know, both coincidentally. But there's definitely an advantage to being in Denver. The other advantage, which I think is even better, is the fact that I'm not in the same circles as New York and, and other financial centers where people are just talking too much and there's too much groupthink, idea dinners, and all these things I just don't participate in because I don't want to get caught in, in, in crowding. And I think because of being in New York and other, you know, Boston and other circles, you get so many people that are just always talking stocks and always talking um, ideas where you get too much crowding. That's, That's a fair own. point. You, well, yeah. you also have a, a proud son of Connecticut, uh, um, John Malone, who uh, one of the legends in your industry, who uh, you know built built Telecommunications Inc. So, if I can, if I can squint hard from here, I can I can see uh, the Liberty headquarters. Is um, you know. I think your strategy is incredibly interesting. I mean, just maybe riffing on futurism for a sec. I also didn't prepare you for this, but I'd love to hear your, where, where do you think, where do you think we are in five years? I mean, I mean, there's going to be a lot of capbacks. There's a lot of things in the air. There's a lot of things I, you know, you hear about low earth orbit, you heard about things up way up in the sky underground. Where, where do you think we are in terms of uh, telecom and chips and AI and uh, when you pull it together for your universe? It's a great question. Cause I do think in long-term increments and, and we spend a lot of time here. I think ultimately, look, th these companies, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, can't just keep throwing the same amount of dollars at NVIDIA and be successful. They have to lower the cost. It's just too expensive. And so this is why they're all designing their own chips, right? And looking at AMD, looking at others. And so I think one is that you might see more vertical integration by Microsoft, Amazon, Google, the guys that have the scale, number one. So I think you might have them either using, you know, maybe even Intel, you know, Maybe they can figure it out. But Intel, AMD, um, their own internal design chipsets, that's one thing, an element. It's more vertically integrated, perhaps, at least in the next three years, maybe not five years. The second thing is, and this is, you know, one of the things that we, you know, we're not just investing in NVIDIA. You know, we actually haven't had a position in NVIDIA all year long. Um, but we have had lots of positions that have taken advantage of the same structure and strategy of the data centers. In other words, things that go in the data center, not just NVIDIA chipsets. You know, there's companies like, Invertive that create that make HVAC equipment for the data centers. So as you're building certain data centers, you need to cool them. Um, you know things like Arista, that is a data networking company that sells to the cloud guys. I do think that generally speaking, the cloud companies are going to get bigger and bigger. That's not a surprise. It's not. It's not something that's revolutionary. But I think over time, it does worry me the power they that we will have. Right, the AT&T's are all the Verizon's of the world. They should have been the cloud companies. They missed the pooch. Right years ago. And so I worry that these telecom companies, not worry about them, but these telecom companies are really becoming access companies. You know, that last mile, either wireless or wireline, is going to be the access point onto the network. But as soon as you're on that network, you're gone. You're onto the cloud network of, of Equinix or that provides uh, interconnection for Amazon, Google, Facebook, whoever. 
And so I feel like the telecom companies going to continue to get mitigated over a long period of time. Yeah, they'll still charge us money for access. That's not going to change. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I do believe that there's a, you know, the cloud companies will continue to get bigger. And that scares me. That scares me in a lot of ways. One, the customer concentration that a lot of these semiconductors are going to have, just like Apple became such a big part of many companies' um, revenue, it got scary, right? Because, you know, some companies have 30% more, uh, of their revenue in Apple. That's not a great thing. I feel like the same thing is happening on the chip side for data centers, where data centers are going to continue to grow. And, uh, and that worries me. And then on the last side is on, on the data centers themselves. Over the next three years, I told you we have pretty good visibility that these data centers and the growth in data centers, construction, building, and delivering is in a rapid pace. I mean, I, I, the amount of CapEx that we're spent, our portfolio companies are spending is out of control. But there's a return on the other side of it. I do worry about, you know, we're signing these, these seven to 10 year deals with Microsoft and Amazon and others. Well, what happens after that seven to 10 year period and the, these deals come up for renewal? Are we going to be able to charge Amazon more rent per square foot, lower rent per square foot? That's, that's actually what keeps me up at night um, for data center companies in general, is that can they actually, with the high customer concentration that we're seeing with the bigger guys getting bigger, or the customers getting bigger, can there be a return at the end of the day if we're underwriting these, these large scale projects with a certain, certain amount of, um, of uh, return profile? Can we maintain that return profile if they say, hey, you know what? We want to pay 20% less for that same space and power. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Alan. We could talk to you for an hour on this stuff. I think it's fascinating and I'd love to revisit with you in about a year and see if uh, you're right about some of the things you said. But I, I think it's just a fascinating area. So thank you. Karen, I, I got to tell you, I love this stuff. I literally love talking about this stuff anytime, anyplace, anywhere. That's awesome. Okay. Well, appreciate it very much. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Thematic Investors Podcast, powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O dot com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Kieran Cavana. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.